Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts on Thursday, April 27th through Saturday, the 29th, feature guest conductor Vladimir Yurovsky and piano soloist Martin Helmschen. The program includes Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 25 and, after intermission, Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 8. And here are program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 25, a work lasting about 30 minutes. Mozart wrote 12 piano concertos in less than three years. We can follow his extraordinary progress almost day by day because in 1784 he began to catalog his works, entering each of his compositions in a small hand-bound volume as soon as he finished it. He even took the book with him on trips since he never knew when he might complete one of several works in progress. He listed six piano concertos that year alone, an astonishing creative achievement and something of a logistical feat as well, since during those same 12 months, he worked on several other substantial scores, maintained a heavy teaching schedule, gave many concerts, entertained a number of house guests, suffered from a kidney infection, recorded the birth of his second son, and moved his entirely family not once, but twice to new lodgings. This was the busiest, most productive period in Mozart's life, and he consistently worked at the peak of his powers both as a composer and as a performer. He apparently thrived on a high-energy existence and a packed calendar. On March 3rd, when he wrote to his father that he had 22 concerts in 38 days, he couldn't fail to see the bright side of such a grueling schedule. I don't think that this way I can possibly get out of practice. The three years, beginning in 1784, marked Mozart's heyday as a performer, and these 12 concertos were his main performing vehicles. The C major concerto we now know as K503 wraps up this exceptional period. It is the twelfth and final work in Mozart's outpouring of concertos and the last one he would write for more than a year. It comes at the end of 1786, a very busy year that began with two operas, the Empresario and the Marriage of Figaro, and included two other piano concertos and the last of the horn concertos, as well as the E-flat piano quartet and several other remarkable pieces of chamber music. Mozart worked simultaneously on the C major concerto and the Prague symphony, completing the former on December 4th and the symphony two days later. With a few days left on the calendar, he turned out one of his most original compositions, the concert aria with obbligato piano, Chiormi Scordi di Te. For many years, the C major piano concerto was seldom played, particularly compared to its immediate predecessor in C minor, which immediately attracted attention with its unusually dark and dramatic colors. K-503 is quite unlike any other concerto in the series. It's certainly the grandest and most symphonic of all. The key itself, C major, the one Haydn later picked for the depiction of light in the creation, regularly inspired some of Mozart's most brilliant and majestic music, such as the earlier piano concerto in the same key, K-467, or the Jupiter Symphony, yet to come. K-503 is, in fact, Mozart's longest concerto, the first movement alone running to a more than generous 432 measures. 
In the classical style, Charles Rosen writes of the almost neutral character of the material in the first movement, and for once, Mozart's subjects seem deliberately conventional. The first 16 measures, for example, offer little more than grand cadential flourishes, a commonplace series of chords that would seem more fitting at the very end to bring down the curtain. But in the 17th measure, Mozart adds a tiny gesture in the oboes and bassoons, first in C major, then in C minor, introducing an ambiguity of mood that will color the entire movement with a continual flickering of light and shadow. And in the very next measure, he launches a plain rhythmic figure that will take over the whole movement, much as Beethoven's famous knocking theme dominates his Fifth Symphony. The rhythm is the same, three short hammer strokes followed by a longer note, although Mozart places all four on the same pitch. When, at the beginning of the development section, the piano seems to begin on the wrong notes, again in the knocking rhythm, the effect is so striking that Beethoven decided to borrow it for his own fourth piano concerto, written 20 years later at the same point in the movement and in the identical rhythm. The Andante is another sonata form movement on a much more intimate scale with piano phrases so lavishly decorated that one can only wonder how Mozart would have further embellished them in performance as was common practice at the time. The rondo finale begins cheerfully enough, but again the clouds roll in, and music that seemed buoyant at first appears less certain. A particularly dark and passionate episode appears midway through. The ending is upbeat, inventive, and brilliant. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 25. And now on to Shostakovich's Symphony No. 8, a work lasting about 62 minutes. Music and war were linked in Shostakovich's mind from early childhood, and an age when other precocious composers were cutting their teeth writing piano pieces, Shostakovich wrote a revolutionary symphony and the funeral march in memoriam to the fallen heroes of the revolution. Shostakovich was only 11 when the Tsar was overthrown. Ten years later, when he had a deeper understanding of both political unrest and music's incalculable power, he dedicated the Second Symphony to the October Revolution. The triumph and tragedy of war have inspired a number of musical works through the ages, including Haydn's dramatic Mass in Time of War, the noisy heroics of Beethoven's Wellington's Victory, and more recently Britain's War Requiem and Sir Michael Tippett's A Child of Our Time. But it's the wartime symphonies by Dmitry Shostakovich that most powerfully tell of individual anguish amid mass devastation that reveal personal grief and the victories of the soul against the big, messy backdrop of combat. Perhaps in Shostakovich's case, we know so much about his own personal political battles that we read too generously between the lines, placing an unnecessary burden on the music. But in the 7th, the Leningrad, and 8th symphonies, both written at the height of World War II and in a tremendous emotional white heat, the notes on the page carry a heavy weight. Both works were designed as public statements intended to address big issues, and they're overwhelming in their sheer size and emotional range. Yet, despite their monumental scale, 
It's a solitary voice that lingers in the ear after the sounds of trumpets and drums have receded. The conflict between public speech and private thought is the province of the modern Soviet artist. Certainly Shostakovich became its most famous victim and his Fifth Symphony, the most astonishing apology ever written in the form of music. Throughout his life, the symphony was Shostakovich's public forum. Despite, and often because of, political tension, the composer maintained his public pose in these big works, leaving the darker, more personal thoughts for his string quartets. But even the symphonies betray him. For many listeners, the end of the Fifth Symphony, with its heroic cadences, sounds oddly hollow, as if Shostakovich could play the part no longer. Shostakovich obviously understood the curious power of music, strangely tangible yet inexplicit, somewhere beyond words. Often, this was for him its saving grace. Words are not my genre, he once told Evgeny Yevtushenko, whose words he did set in the 13th Symphony, Babi Yar. I never lie in music, Shostakovich said, and it was Yevtushenko's outspoken text, not Shostakovich's music, that caused trouble and had to be revised after the premiere. Certainly, Shostakovich's own words raise many questions even today. The authenticity of testimony, the memoirs of Dmitry Shostakovich as related to and edited by Solomon Volkov, is still disputed. And so we're left with the music. In his introduction to testimony, Volkov quotes Ilya Ehrenberg, who said when confronted with the Eighth Symphony, music has a great advantage. Without mentioning anything, it can say everything. Shostakovich himself always maintained a curious silence regarding his Eighth Symphony, even though he had often spoken out about its predecessor and fellow war symphony, the Leningrad. These two works, for all their similarities, could hardly be more different. Unlike the Seventh Symphony, the Eighth has no title, and it isn't about anything as concrete as the Siege of Leningrad. The circumstances that inspired it are less sensational. The original score says only the composer worked on the symphony at the Ivanovo Home for Composers Creative Work in the summer of 1943. And the music less specific in its evocation. But if anything, the eighth is more deeply motivated. While the seventh chronicles the horrors of war, the eighth seeks understanding. And where the seventh limits its scope to the triumph of victory, the eighth looks beyond the horizon to true peace. Shostakovich cast the work in an irregular arrangement of five movements, the last three linked in one powerful, unbroken sequence that is unparalleled in the symphonic literature. That span of music, lasting a full half hour, is balanced by a single movement nearly as long and heavy with anger and sadness at the start. A quick and savage scherzo, marked simply allegretto, stands between. A solitary strand of music, played by the cellos and basses, begins the symphony, adagio and fortissimo. Shostakovich moves somberly through slowly shifting music, dirge-like and contemplative, then angry, even explosive. A barely contained outburst gives way to a long passage of quiet reflection. 
Midway, the music slowly rises to its greatest climax and then breaks to reveal the mad galloping of the Allegro non troppo capped by wild horn calls and a beating drum. Movement is halted finally by an explosion signaled by terrifying drum rolls, leaving us with the sound of an English horn, the lone survivor, and a nearly deafening silence. Shostakovich makes little of the shift from C minor to C major. The latter has rarely sounded so bleak, even though this is our first glimpse of our destination, still a half hour away. Next comes the full force of the allegretto, tremendous and irregular marching music characterized by the swagger of the brass band, striding tunes, high-flying piccolo squeals, and a banging drum. It's a harrowing vision of the military march. The music eventually disintegrates. At one point, there's little left but the flute on top and the contrabassoon five octaves below, and then rears up for one last crash. The last three movements are conceived as one. The climax of the Allegro non troppo becomes the beginning of the Largo. The crux of that movement, in turn, opens onto the great vistas of the final Allegretto. This progression is calculated with a keen sense of drama and a master's command of the big picture. The Allegro non troppo is a terrifying piece of music, not only because of its menacing tone and dangerous pace, but also because it sounds inhuman, like the workings of a giant and sinister machine. It begins with rapid, even quarter notes that march relentlessly through every measure, starting in the violas and eventually invading the entire orchestra. Page after page brings no relief, only the occasional shrill cries of the winds or a crazed bugle call. Suddenly, with a drum roll and a couple of grand ceremonial chords from the full orchestra, a powerful unison theme is announced. And only then, when the music pulls back quietly from triple F to a thread of sound, do we understand that the machine has stopped and that this noble new theme has swept us into the serene expanses of the Largo. That theme is the foundation for an expansive set of variations, and it's repeated 12 times, always in the low strings, while ever new ideas circle above it, including several rhapsodic solos. This solemn threnody, restrained and quiet, many pages don't rise above a pianissimo, is the calm after the storm. But while there's calm, there's not yet peace. That comes in a moment of extraordinary stillness, at the same time one of the quietest and most important moments in the score, when the three clarinets lead the music up into the pure radiance of a C major triad. The final allegretto, opened up by the discovery of C major, has an unexpected air of innocence. The music is simple and even playful. Listen to the opening diatonic bassoon melody, or to the jubilant piping of the piccolo a few bars later, and the scene is fresh and pastoral. Even though there are reminders of more troubled music midway through, the opening of the symphony breaks in at the climax, it's a bold and provocative ending for a dark, tragic symphony. It also has proven controversial. Critics found the finale anticlimactic. 
The Soviet authorities, unable to reconcile these few rays of sunlight falling on so much desolation, called it an optimistic tragedy. But optimistic is too unambiguous a word for the serene and dreamy, emotionally complex final pages. Shostakovich leaves it to each of us to hear this music as inward and personal as anything in his symphonic output in our own way. Program notes by Philip Husher on Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 8. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Thank you.